The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. China grows faster than expected. First quarter GDP hit 4.5% following the lifting of COVID restrictions in December, while factory output and retail sales also enjoy a strong rebound. U.S. financial groups Charles Schwab, State Street and M&T report combined deposit outflows of almost $60 billion as investors seek higher returns and Apple launches its own high-yield savings account. Uh, Stocks dip in Asia, though, but the mood remains optimistic on Wall Street ahead of further key earnings due today. Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, J&J and Netflix all set to report. And elsewhere, the French President Emmanuel Macron doubles down defending his controversial pension reform plan in a prime-time address, calling the measures necessary to get France back on its feet. He'll also just go on without doing anything, because deficits would grow, as well as the debt of future generations. China's economy picked up pace in the first quarter, growing 4.5%, faster than the 2.9% in the previous quarter and comfortably topping analysts' expectations of a 4% rise. The acceleration came after Beijing abruptly lifted COVID restrictions in December, following nearly three years of strict lockdowns. Sam joins us uh, with more on this story. And Sam, we've been watching the data very closely since the start of the year here. And finally, it does appear that the rebound is coming through in the numbers. Good morning to you, Jeff. Yes, absolutely. And analysts have described this as a decent set of figures that we got today. They've said that this is impressive and encouraging because what we've seen is the economy growing uh, faster than the market was expecting at a rate of 4.5%. As you can see there, expectations were for around 4%, but it was better than the 2.9% we saw in the fourth quarter of 2022, of course, as China emerged from the uh, lockdown-heavy zero-COVID strategy, of course, that we saw with the dismantling of those very strict COVID curbs uh, in December. So this is the first full quarter that we're seeing when we've seen this post-reopening rebound uh, that has really helped that boost to consumption when you look at the services sector as well and also when you look at some of that stimulus with the infrastructure spending. But uh, what we have seen certainly playing out at the moment is an uneven and patchy recovery because we also got uh, the economic activity indicators for the month of March which uh, tied up uh, the first quarter quarter, of course. And what we saw was a huge jump when it came to those retail sales up 10.6%. The market was only looking for around 7.5%, far better than the 3.5 or so percent that we got in the month of February. And that is really going to show the continued post-reopening momentum we're seeing when it comes to consumption. Uh, This is said to be largely down to catering COVID-sensitive restaurant growth. So think of hot pot. I'm sorry if I'm making you hungry again, Jeff, although it is very early in the morning. I don't think it's time for hot pot. 
but what we've seen is the retail sales really pulling the weight here throughout the first quarter in terms of that boost to consumption. Industrial output 3.9%, just a smidge below what the market was expecting, but an improvement from February, perhaps helped out by that surprising export data that we got, of course, in double digits for the month of March, uh, which was really largely down to uh, NEVs, of course, but also factories um, playing catch-ups, essentially. So the market is really waiting to see uh, if that momentum has legs, given the uncertainties playing out uh, globally at the moment. Uh, We do know that manufacturing has been slower. It's been struggling to keep up with the momentum when you look at the services sector. And then you had fixed asset investment on the end here, growth of 5.1%, which was slightly lower than what the market was expecting uh, for the first quarter. In terms of where that investment went, um, largely infrastructure spending up around 8.8%, but we did continue to see some sluggishness when it came to property investment uh, down 5.7%. So that perhaps uh, speaks to the continued persistent weakness we're seeing in the property sector, although we have started to see uh, signs of green shoots. We got that new home price data out over the weekend, which was the best in around 21 months. So we are starting to see more of a broad-based recovery, but there are still areas that perhaps are struggling to to catch up. We also got um, unemployment, of course, 5.3%. So that came down, but youth unemployment still in concerning double digits, actually ticking up to 19%. Let's take a look at how the markets have been reacting to all of this, because this is quite interesting. Of course, just coming out of the lunch break now, and we've seen what you could say is a fairly lackluster response. You've seen a a, a very flat performance for the Shanghai Composite and also for that CSI 300 index. Uh, We've seen some weakness over in Hong Kong this morning. And there is this view, uh, certainly among economists and analysts today, that perhaps this response we're seeing in the market is down to some of these lingering concerns um, that the momentum we're seeing might actually fade as some of that revenge spending, they're calling it, uh, might actually start to taper off in the second half of the year, but also given the persistent um, worries and uncertainties we're seeing uh, globally with, of course, higher rates and inflation, which may continue to weigh uh, on some of those exports as well. So uh, we are certainly waiting to see if this recovery that we've seen, certainly in the numbers today, uh, has legs and if it is uh, certainly sustainable. Uh, Economists we've been speaking to say it's a little bit early to tell. Um, In terms of the policy response, um, that's, of course, the next big question. When you look at those retail sales, uh, perhaps you would say you probably don't need to respond. But uh, if this week is anything to go by, we had no cut to the medium term lending facility rate. That acts as a guide for the loan prime rate. uh, And we'll be getting that on Thursday. So we probably expect to see no change in terms of those benchmark uh, lending rates as well. Back to you guys in London. Sam, terrific. Thank you so much for the report. You've covered off a lot of the detail. Let's get to uh, Ning Zhang now, a senior China economist for UBS Investment Research. Um, and I think Sam brought up some, some very interesting questions there about how much momentum there is in this recovery and whether it is primarily just a spurt of domestic-led spending as people have come out of lockdown. What's your expectation here? Can this continue? And how does the exporting side of the Chinese economy join the party? Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So for sure, the Q1 GDP growth is well above expectation, uh, which was boosted by service and consumption, thanks to China's reopening and also thanks to uh, China's previous policy support. So given the very strong momentum of consumption uh, and way, uh, especially in FQ1, so uh, we think the consumption recovery actually is determined by three elements. 
The first one, of course, is the removal of COVID restrictions, which means China reopening. Now it is happening now. But uh, this kind of removal of COVID restrictions has some ceiling, a so-called fiscal constraint. For example, China's traveling volume and passenger turnover, et cetera, et cetera, all well above 2019 pre-COVID level. So that's why in the next couple of quarters, we believe China's consumption rebound, especially for durable goods and also for uh, continued recovery in services and uh, other goods uh, consumption will be heavily uh, depending on two things. First one is income growth rebound. Second one is the uh, expectation uh, improvement and sentiment improvement. Uh, however, the, the latter two components are lagging uh, behind the removal of COVID restrictions. And also, it uh, should be happening maybe not now, but uh, maybe a couple of months Ning. later, we could see further improvement. Ning, let me just jump in because you've made some really interesting points. I, I wanted to pick up, though, on the, the question of the, the um, income growth that you discussed. Um, uh, uh, Chai Chin uh, put out a piece just talking about Chinese mutual fund losses being the largest since 2008. The total net loss from 2022, $218.6 billion. To what extent does that negative wealth effect have any bearing on um, domestic demand and spending, do you think, or is it primarily institutional losses? Uh, frankly speaking, if you look at the breakdown of China's household wealth uh, in financial assets, the more than one half or more than 60% are still in housing market, and maybe another 20 to 30% in, uh, in banking deposits, and another 10 to 20% in the financial assets. So that's why, yes, it matters, but not as much if uh, you compare China with other developed economies. Uh, and last year, we can see a big a shortfall uh, in terms of the financial assets allocation, and uh, a big part of it has been reallocated to banking deposits. That's why we saw a big increase of banking deposits last year. So this year, we can see the banking deposits may be reallocated back to some financial assets, but also part of them could be used for consumption, if any, in the future, but not now. Because now the sentiment on the ground is still still very, uh, sorry, relatively, relatively a little bit cautious. I believe it still takes some time to see full improvement of confidence, and then it can uh, use the excess saving release, uh, which could be positive for future consumption, not now. Ning, uh, just a question from me, well, a couple really. Um, why is, despite things looking better, the uh, youth unemployment still the second highest level on record at a, a pretty large 19.6%? And how big a problem could that be for policymakers in China? Sure. Uh, the number is very high. It's uh, almost uh, close to 20% in March. Uh, despite the headline unemployment rate uh, already edged down to 5.3%. So the big divergence between young age group versus the prime age group actually uh, has been uh, explained by several uh, factors. The first one, young age group, they tend to be quite volatile, which means they find a job, lose a job. If you look at the pre-COVID-19 level, the young age group unemployment rate is still around 11 or 12% higher than 
high, not very low. That's number one. Number two is the, this kind of youngest group is uh, more willing to find a job in service sector or less manufacturing intensive sectors. So that's why you can see as, as long as the more service sector picking up, especially for SMEs, we believe the youngest group unemployment rate will decline. But uh, again, labor market is a lagging, lagging indicator. It still takes some time. Uh, if you look at China's uh, manufacturing in production in the previous year, not that bad. This year, still modest. So continued provision of jobs, but not that much to, or not so attractive for young age group. And then final one for me, you have to already touched upon part of this next question, so I appreciate that. But but the, the real estate sector, I mean, you touched upon a couple of numbers. Uh, investment there falling 5.8%, uh, home sales by area declining 1.8%, new housing starts down 19.2% year on year in the first quarter as well. How big a problem, again, is that for a lot of the revenues and hence the ability to satiate social concerns for local municipalities and and broader government as well? Because if they're not getting those revenues from land sales and new home sales, that prevents uh, presents a very large black hole in their finances. Yeah, sure. So let's look at the positive side, which means, uh, uh, you know, the Q1 uh, home sales is only a small decline. It's uh, actually much earlier and stronger than expected in terms of the property sales rebound. So that's a be positive. Looking forward, we believe, we believe property sales recovery will continue, although the sequential momentum may be not that strong. But for the full year, the property sales may record a small decline from one year ago, which is a much, be- much less bad than previous year. That's a less of a drag story on China's growth. That's still good. And also, it should be a lesser drag on the government's revenue at local levels. That's the positive side. However, as you said, if you look at the homeland market and also the new starts, it all points to not that strong uh, future picture. So that's why this year we believe, yes, local governments are still facing challenges in gathering land sales revenue and even land and property related property tax revenue. And which will be a, a challenging a situation for LGFA financing and repaying their debt. Uh, we think possibly LGFA may face more defaults. But again, uh, LGFAs are different with uh, de- developer, uh, developers and the housing market. Uh, they still have some kind of uh, implicit guarantee. So that's why the government will prevent the uh, LGFA defaults from uh, the deteriorating too sharply uh, to trigger a systematic risk. Really nice to have you on the programme. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Ning Zhang, uh, Senior China Economist for UBS Investment Research on some of the challenges the Chinese government has to uh, manoeuvre to maintain these growth rates. And for more on what's driving the recovery in the world's second largest economy, check out CNBC.com. We've got that story. Steve. Right, quick look at the US markets, which continue to glide higher. I say glide because it wasn't exactly... um the biggest rise up with yes, so in fact it was brought down by one or two names which i'll come to in a moment but we were up three tenths of one percent across the board actually on the dow the s p uh, and the nasdaq as well boeing for instance was up 22 points uh, pulling the dow higher uh, eight out of 11 sectors were in positive territory this time 
Uh, the opposite of Friday, actually. Real estate, which declined at the tail end of last week, was the biggest gaining sector. Uh, energy stocks fell the best part of 2%. But perhaps, arguably, the most interest is in the following two sectors, banks and technology. So let's have a quick look at the banks as well, because, oh dear, look at State Street. We were, we were eulogising yesterday about the JP Morgan biggest rally in over 20 years, 7.5% on the back of their earnings. Biggest rally on the back of the earnings. Well, yesterday, State Street plummeting in the opposite direction, down 9.2%. It was uh, this deposit flight story that we've already alluded to, which was the concern for these three names, Charles Schwab and M&T Bank as well. And the fact is, um, well, here's a question for you, and we're going to come to this in a few moments' time, so I'll just leave the question dangling for, 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 for the next couple of seconds as well. Do you see deposits leave a bank because there are better uh, interest rates elsewhere? Or do you see deposits leave a bank because you're concerned about the financial situation of the bank? And the answer, of course, is it depends. It can be both. It can be either. But it's very interesting seeing the excuses from some of the biggest financial institutions uh, for the reasons why they are seeing deposits leaving as well. It might be to do with the fact that there are pathetic interest rates offered on savings account and you're relying on inertia from most of your customers. Could possibly be, couldn't it? Let's have a look at Alphabet and Microsoft as well. Intriguing story. I believe it started in the New York Times and I don't think we have a conclusion to this. But the story goes that uh, Samsung is having a little think about the next contract for who supplies its uh, search engine as well. Now, as you well know, it's Google at the moment. But what if it turned into Bing rather than Google? And this is what led uh, Microsoft to outperform Alphabet on the back of that story. I don't think we have any conclusion to that story. And I don't know if necessarily we're looking in the rear view mirror. And actually, Samsung has made its decision now as well. But just keep an eye on that one as well. A very, very important contract, of course, on those Android devices, as indeed it is on iOS as well, uh, for Google to be the search engine of choice and already loaded uh, into those devices. Uh, move on to treasuries quickly. Again, we keep hearing this line, don't we, from all the, well, the markets will do our job for us, i.e. the central banks don't have to hike as much. But what if, what if the data turns? What if the forward-looking data looks really robust and actually you have to suddenly suddenly do more work on the interest rate hikes. Well, that's kind of what was driving the 4.2% yield pickup and the decline in the underlying on the two yesterday, the 10-year picking up to 3.6% as well. Because once again, there was good data out. And yeah, Empire State uh, survey for April showed an uptick, which was way better than many had expected. A lot of housing data this week, including housing starts, which are today. Anyway, let's go back to that deposit story now. And Jeff will fill you in some details. Yeah, let's have a look at the numbers. Nearly $60 billion were pulled from three financial companies in the first quarter. Deposits at Charles Schwab shrank 11% from the prior quarter, while State Street and regional bank M&T each saw a 3% drop. U.S. savers have been pulling cash out of low-yielding bank accounts and putting the money into alternative products like money market funds or treasury bills that pay better returns. And now Apple is trying to get its own slice of the pie. I like what you did there. Uh, partnering with Goldman Sachs to launch a new high-yield savings account for Apple Card users that offer a 4.15% interest rate, which is multiples 
of the average 0.35% you uh, get in most banking We'll come back to this because I yeah. think it's fascinating and, and we're going to turn into a bit of a, a personal finance channel rather than the business channel, which, which is a divide we very rarely go over. But the earnings parade stateside continues today with first quarter results out from big banks such as Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. We'll also hear from Johnson & Johnson and Netflix numbers after the bell. Right, should we do a quick word on departure? I mean, look, I, I, one... Of the, 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 the key features of this March decline in banking stocks was concern about financial viability. Yeah. Um, but the one of the key areas of strength in the earnings season has been about net interest income and net interest margin at the biggest players. Yeah. Uh, it is no coincidence that actually, uh, as interest rates go up, net interest margins pick up as well. And it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a hoary old chestnut that we've talked about a lot over the years. But the fact of the matter is, there are some absolutely pathetic, pathetic interest rates offered to savers out there by a vast number of financial institutions. And dare I say it, with interest rates up now and we're talking about terminal rates, where they're going to be, five and a quarter, five and a half, six percent, who knows? When your average savings account rate in the United States, well, what do you think it is, given the fact that we're talking about um, rates potentially finishing somewhere north of 5% in the United States. What do you reckon your average amount of money you get for a savings account is in the United States? It's the same in this country. It's pathetic. 0.37%. Well, so, I've been saying 0.35, but well, uh, I, I, got, I, I, this I, is from the FT, is it? This is from the FT, yeah. which says the... Uh, look, it doesn't matter. Right. No one's going to quibble about your 0.02 difference. It's pathetic. Mm. And actually, I applaud any saver who actively moves their money on the back of that pathetic rate as well. Because if Apple are offering you, and mm. I don't even know how much you can put it with Apple, or anyone's offering you mm. safe, guaranteed deposits, and that's another issue which is coming up, and we talked about yesterday in the United mm. Kingdom as well. If someone's offering you 2 3 4% on your money, and you're getting 0.37, you need to be way more active. Um, and they have been moving the money. Uh, so we got some Morningstar data here. Money market mutual funds took in $363 billion in March. That is the third highest total ever going back to 1993, according to uh, the Morningstar data here. Um, and, and Steve was pointing out the, the uh, net interest margin. Um, just to explain, if you're not familiar with the terminology, it's basically the difference between what the bank is paying on the deposits vis-a-vis -vis what the bank is lending that money out at. So it, clearly there's been a much bigger gap because the banks have been doing whatever they can to make as much money as possible and here because the deposit no rate problem with that. has that's been so job. small. But, but the interesting question is, how have they managed to get away with that? And I think it, it points to a more fundamental issue of the competitiveness within the uh, banking environment because you would, you would imagine that there would be natural competition between competing uh, deposit-holding banks to want to attract that money. But I, I do wonder whether um, either... Um, investors have become complacent about where they put the money. Well, I say complacent, fearful and complacent yeah. because they are parking money in institutions they believe will definitely return the money. So maybe they're being less adventurous in seeking out high yielding assets because they are worried about the direction of the economy more generally. So they've been content to take a much lower return 
because they are concerned about the return of their money, not necessarily the return on them on their money, to use that old hackneyed phrase. Or it could just be um, limited financial intelligence when it comes to maximising yeah. the return on your money. We complain a lot in this country about how people go through the school system, but they're not taught basic fundamental personal finance ideas to do now? about interest rates and lending and credit cards yeah. and so on and, and so forth. And that's what you and I are here to Richard help. Richard Sunak talking about maths till 18. It's, doing maths today. Which is just torture for so many right. people. I understand what he's trying to do, but it's yeah. just, I know so many amazingly smart young people and older people, dare I say it, and the prospect of doing school till you're 18 anyway is awful for many very entrepreneurial people, but actually having to do maths mm. till you're 18, it's, uh, anyway, that's another story. Look, let's, do, let's go for a bit of basic financial literacy here, shall we? Your deposit scheme in America now, you've got 250 grand, 250,000 bucks. You're safe. So wherever you put your money, you're safe up to that level now, yeah? And that's not a problem for most of you out there. Most of you anywhere around there, because your savings level, your average savings level in the States is $4,500. So wherever you put your money, it's going to be pretty safe for most of you out there. Not for most of our high net worth individual viewers who are watching us now from their treadmills in, I don't know, San Diego now, wherever they are, all over the place, you know. Mm. But the point of the matter is, don't worry about it. Just move your money because it's safe for most of you out there. In fact, yeah. it's probably safe for a vast amount, more than 250000 given the, the mood music we've had from a lot of the regulators. Yes, no, absolutely. And back to the maths. I mean, maybe if they start teaching compound interest rather than algebra, <laughs> that, that might be more useful yeah, yeah, yeah. to people, you know, when they would go into their working life. But I, uh, I, stopped maths a, I stopped maths. Actually, I stopped maths early because... I had all the maths I needed. I know yes. it sounds really silly, but yeah. I stopped at 16. Yeah. I still did economics. Mm. I still did politics. I still, but I, I'd, I'd got my qualifications, done it, did, had what I needed, and then moved on. There's only a certain amount of math you need to be mm. able to understand how to run a spreadsheet or how to, <laughs> how to read a balance sheet, surely. Mm. No, no, I can't disagree. And, and, you know, it feels a little bit like we've gone back to, do you remember back to basics? Was that major? Back to Probably. basics. Every we, we, prime minister we, ever. Oh, isn't it? Every conservative one. It seems. Well, do you know it? what they should have? Should, do you know who should have learned a bit of maths? Was the Chancellor of the Exchequer back in 1998 when he sold our gold reserves at 300 dollars a troy ounce? Right. Or, or even the more recent example of the Chancellor oh, back no, no, no. in uh, no, no, 2022. There's a brilliant headline. Have you seen it? And I'll give full credit to our friends at the. Don't run that music. I'm going to carry on for as long as it takes. Uh, there's a great headline in the FT today. It's, it's along the lines of guilt reverse the idiot premium. <laughs> who, uh, I think the idiot premium is referring to two members of the cabinet, or former members of the cabinet, who were colleagues of Rishi Sunak. Absolutely. We're going to take the break on that. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to take you to uh, Scotland in just a moment, to the Shetland Islands to be more specific. We're hoping that Arabile will have climbed a uh, wind turbine to bring us his exclusive interview with the CEO of the energy provider SSE. So lots of suspense here as we wait to see where Arabile is. Yeah, and the podcast, oh my goodness me, it's all about China's economy and, and basic finance principles here on Scorebox.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, SSE CEO Alistair Phillips Davis says the UK should get back to building its own infrastructure instead of importing oil and gas from far-flung places that we no longer want to deal with. Wow. Uh, This, as the firm's Viking Wind Farm is said to become UK's largest onshore plant in terms of annual electricity output when it completes next year. Let's get to Arabila, who's on the ground in Shetland, uh, where the first turbine turbine convoys uh, started arriving this month. Arabile, fill us in. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you then, Steve. Look, what is for sure then is I couldn't get up one of those, unfortunately. It's more than 100 meters uh, in the sky, really, and the wind up there would have certainly blown me away as well and probably blown the story away. But, yeah, you're quite right. Shetlands, right, part of the Northern Isles. And let's remember that in 1970 or so, uh, just towards the east and west of this island, they did find oil reserves, and that is really what uh, been what has been powering this island, really, for many years now. But that is about to change. SSE really embarking on a strategy to enhance renewables. Of course, the UK, as well as other European nations, have been wanting to wean off of the Russian gas and move to the renewable sector. And that has meant that a lot of investment has needed to be put through. And SSE saying this is the perfect place to do so. 103 wind turbines being put across the entire island, set then to power at least the entire Shetland Island, plus parts of uh, Scotland as well in the mainland. 500,000 households are said to be uh, powered uh, by uh, how much is being put forward here. So this is certainly a major project. And as noted, as you said as well, uh, the CEO really feels that a lot more needs to be done to ensure that the UK as well as Europe no longer relies on unwanted fossil fuels. In fact, this is what he had to say regarding prices as well as how much it costs to put this project forward. Consumers everywhere across Europe have seen prices rise significantly across the UK and Ireland markets that we really operate in. We've probably seen prices double over the last 18 months, two years. Now, we can bring those costs down hugely by building more renewables, uh, by getting the energy transition right in the sense of bringing energy home. We don't want to be importing oil and gas uh, from far-flung places that we no longer want to deal with and where we no longer trust the regimes. Let's get back to building our own infrastructure, relying on what we've got and making sure um, not only we get it a lot cheaper, but also we've got a lot more security supply because we're in control of it. Mm, the funding for projects like this, though, I mean, that's, that's quite heavy, though, as well, isn't it? Yeah, but there is, there is significant uh, re- requirement for funding. The couple of projects that we've seen here today, um, over 400 million for the wind farm, about 600 million for the big transmission link. Uh, but this funding is available. Um, We, as SSE, have got lots of shovel-ready projects. We're anticipating investing £24 over this decade. Um, There's lots of flexible projects, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, things like that that are key to the energy transition. And we've got a lot of very, very large wind farms, including a 4,000-megawatt wind farm at Berwick Bank, which will be the world's largest, uh, where, again, we're looking for the final stage of consent so we can start building what will be a £10 billion-plus project. Yeah. How do we get government involved in ensuring that there is a greater push not just for public uh, to get involved in this but really even just for more private entities maybe 
So I think governments, uh, and particularly in the UK, have shown real leadership with their commitment to 2050 and net zero, their commitment um, to offshore wind targets by 2030 and decarbonising electricity by 2035. The high-level commitments have been there. What we need to see now is some of the actions that says, right, we want to halve the time it takes to consent a lot of these big projects. We want to presume that if it's a renewables project, it should be built, and therefore there's a presumption that planning should go through. Um, while we absolutely need to um, talk to all the consultees, we need to make sure that we can do this quicker. The UK needs to be the best place to invest. Guys, this project is clearly going to take some time to really kick off. But actually, the CEO says that within a year's time, they could in indeed be powering uh, most of Shetland. It is going to be a 90-10 split, meaning 90% of the power into Shetland and uh, some parts of Scotland will be through this renewable plant, this wind farm, while 10% will still come uh, then from the old oil reserves which have been put forward. And that is only just because if the wind doesn't blow, then they'll need to make sure that they have a another means uh, of offering power to the rest of the islands. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.